This is the fourth day of this January 2020 Rohatsu seven-day session. <coughs> we'll take one more day now commenting on the teachings of uh, Chinese Zen master Da Wei. It's again from the book Swampland Flowers. The letters and lectures of Zen master Da Wei translated by Christopher Cleary. Sorry, Chris, I forgot to mention you the last couple of days. This is the start of a new letter. Having read your letter carefully, I have come to know that you are unremitting in your conduct, that you are not carried away by the press of official duties, that in the midst of swift-flowing streams, you vigorously examine yourself. Far from being lax, your aspiration to the path grows ever more firm as time goes on. You have fulfilled my humble wishes solidly and profoundly. I think he's just going to leave it at that, just a lot of praise. Next paragraph. Nevertheless... Worldly passions are like a blazing fire. When will they ever end? To get the most out of uh, these these Chinese texts, just always there's this indirectness. Um, he's not saying uh, you're still in the grip of these worldly passions. He says this. It just generalizes it. Worldly passions are like a blazing fire. When will they ever end? Right in the midst of the hubbub, you mustn't forget the business of the bamboo chair and reed cushion. Usually, to meditate, you set your mind on a still concentration point, but you must be able to use it right in the midst of the hubbub. If you have no strength amidst commotion, after all, as if it's as if you never made any effort in stillness. So this is the hard part of Zen practice. It's hard enough uh, bringing your mind together and bring it, having it settle, get concentrated while sitting. Then while activity, while inactivity, this is the the real challenge. That's so important. Dawei emphasizes this just as, as Hakuin did. They're so similar in their teaching styles, emphasizing this, this, uh, the importance of practice in the midst of activity. Uh, this reference, uh, you mustn't forget the business of the bamboo chair and reed cushion. Uh, my mind goes back to when we visited Shaolin Temple, uh, Bodhidharma's temple, and uh, were startled to see not nice mats, kapok cushions and mats, and, but uh, yes, as I remember, some kind of a 
rattan is how I've described it, but probably, yeah, bamboo. It's a chair um, without a back, so kind of a stool, really. Um, and then in it, it has a, it's a little bit sunken slightly, a little bit concave uh, at the top of the stool, of this this uh, bamboo stool, and in 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 there is uh, this so-called cushion, uh, which is sort of soft, made of soft uh, reeds. Honestly, I I don't I haven't been able to remember over the years what this stuff was made of, but this sounds about right. What startled me was to find that the top is a little concave. So it almost forces you to have your knees up, which is the last thing you want to do. In my experience, get those knees down so that you have this pelvic tilt. We sat, uh, they let us sit one morning with them. This was uh, 34 years ago now. Uh, they let us sit during come to the sitting, the morning sitting, the monks, and um, yeah, it was a lot of adjusting to the, the conditions there. So, but all that aside, what he's saying is, don't forget to sit every day. I've come to gather from many years of giving doksan that. All too many people don't find time in their busy lives to sit every day. And uh, I think they understand that Zen can't really do anything for them unless they actually do the practice. And yeah, they seem to know that, and yet there's this... Kind of mysterious trade-off. Uh, you just have to get to the point where you really feel the need to sit every day, and then you'll find time. You'll find a way to squeeze it in. That's, I think, is what more or less what Dawei is saying to this uh, lay practitioner. This is kind of intriguing. He says, I have heard that there was some complicated situation in the past, and now you are experiencing the sadness of the outcome. You're alone, and you do not dare to hear your fate. So, you know, this very well could be that he's in, he's in prison. There was a lot of, a lot of that during well, yeah, certainly during the Tang dynasty, but this is the the Sung dynasty. Uh, well, there was no real, there was no rule of law as we as we know it. Uh, it's a great, great uh, misuse of power, and uh, you know, even the monks, even the masters, could be uh, imprisoned. I don't know. Maybe that's not it, but. Uh, but this last clause, and you do not dare to hear your fate. And he says, if you cling to this thought, then it will obstruct the path. 
an ancient worthy said, if you can recognize the inherent nature, Buddha nature, while going along with the flow, there is neither joy nor sorrow. Uh, also think of uh, those who have a biopsy for some uh, condition and uh, then have to wait for a while to hear what what the diagnosis is it's a good a good test of one's um, how how quiet one's mind is or how agitated how how easily it uh, catastrophizes and plays out different scenarios. And he quotes Vimalakirti. It's like this. The high plateau does not produce lotus flowers. It is the mire of the low swamplands that produces these flowers. This is a uh, very much a cherished metaphor in Zen that uh, the, the, the greatest uh, yeah, flowering of our, our capacity uh, comes from right here, where we are in this world of of our own defilements and delusions. Um, where else is it going to come from? It's, this is where we work from. Our own many forms of greed, our many forms of hostility, anger, irritation, rage, and the many forms of confusion. These are, these are the three poisons. That these, these poisons uh, are what uh, fertilize, fertilize the, the plant of practice. Uh, often it's the it's providing the the impetus the the spur to practice because of the pain the pain that we incur and the pain we cause to others through these three poisons and uh, this is the other side of it is it can then provide the the uh, motivation to go deep. He continues, if you consider quietude right and commotion wrong, then this is seeking the real aspect by destroying the worldly aspect. Seeking nirvana, the peace of extinction, apart from birth and death. When you like the quiet and hate the hubbub, 
This is just the time to apply effort. Suddenly, when in the midst of hubbub you topple the scene of quietude, that power surpasses the meditation seat and cushion by a million billion times. So it could be here that, that given this, the context here, that in this case, uh, the mire of the low swamplands uh, also just means the worldly, uh, worldly stresses of daily life, uh, the difficulty of holding the mind steady in stressful circumstances. Hubbub is uh, kind of an old, old word. I don't hear it anymore. If anyone doesn't know what that means, hubbub just means all the coming and going and commotion and activity of one's life. In other words, he's saying if you, if you try to separate uh, quietness uh, from activity, uh, then this is going wrong. And he picks up on that theme in the next short letter. Once, once you have achieved peaceful stillness of body and mind, you must make earnest effort. Do not immediately settle down in peaceful stillness. In the teachings, this is called the deep pit of liberation, much to be feared. This is, uh, as the monitors and I know, and um, I think Sashin veterans know, this is the the, uh, particular danger of this uh, middle point of Sashin. Well, actually, any 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 point after the mid mid Sashin is the danger of just sinking into a wonderful quietness of mind. And just savoring it and staying there. It's so pleasant. It's so soothing to have the mind relatively still at rest. It's a good way of just getting stalled out and going no further. It's a, it's a, that too is a test of one's practice. Is that enough for you? Just rest in this, have a a nest, rest in a nest of quiet. It's not only Zen uh, where the, the masters recognize the danger of lingering there. Uh, the uh, great Sufi 
Master Rumi uh, said, wherever you find a lullaby, leave. Safety is just danger in the end. Safety is final danger. It's a, it calls into question one's aspiration. Do you just want to be peaceful? It's not, nothing wrong with wanting that. Most, most people who come to Sashin have lives of great activity, turmoil, decision making, some conflict. What a relief it is to move on into the second half of Sashin and find this peace. There really is nothing right or wrong to it. It's just, is that enough for you? And it can come on uh, without one's knowing it. It can, uh, you just find all of a sudden that for two days you've been kind of rocked into like, like a, rocked like rocking a baby. The, uh, another Chinese master, Po Shan, he put it this way, Once those who have lived amidst the noise and restlessness of worldly affairs experience the joy of quietness, they become captivated by its honey-sweet taste, craving it like an exhausted traveler who seeks a peaceful den in which to slumber. How can people with such an attitude retain their awareness? This is called the deep pit of liberation, much to be feared. And Daiwei continues, You must make yourself turn freely like a gourd floating on the water, independent and free, not subject to restraints, entering purity and impurity without being obstructed or sinking down. Only then do you have a little familiarity with the school of the patch-robed monks. If you just manage to cradle the uncrying child in your arms, what's the use? like a gourd floating on the water, independent and free. Not, not bound by your likes and dislikes, your aversions, your resistance. Resistance is another enemy in Sashin that we face over and over again. Resistance to getting out of bed, resistance to um, sitting up at night, and then just the resistance to pressing on further than we think we can.
here now, two or three letters later, he begins, This affair is like the bright sun in the blue sky, shining clearly, changeless and motionless, without diminishing or increasing. It shines everywhere in the daily activities of everyone, appearing in everything. It's our true nature, of course, he's talking about. Our original mind. Though you try to grasp it, you cannot get it. Though you try to abandon it, it always remains. It is vast and unobstructed, utterly empty. Like a gourd floating on water, it cannot be reined in or held down. Since ancient times, when good people of the way have attained this, they've appeared and disappeared in the sea of birth and death, able to use it fully. There is no deficit or surplus, nothing lacking, nothing in excess. It's like cutting up sandalwood. Each piece is it. When a piece of uh, sandalwood is cut up, each piece is fragrant. This phrase, uh, after attaining this, uh, they've appeared and disappeared in the sea of birth and death, in the sea of samsara, of coming and going, all of the fluctuations of fortune and this and that in daily life. Here's another, another point where Dawei addresses the uh, challenge of um, slipping into a state of emptiness or getting, when, when one is getting beyond thoughts. He says, there's another sort. As soon as they hear a wise advisor, a senior practitioner or teacher, speak of such an affair, they still use their conceptual minds to figure it out and say, if it's like this, then won't I fall into emptiness? Ten out of ten gentlemen of affairs entertain this kind of view. I have no choice but to tell them, you haven't ever reached emptiness, so what are you afraid of? It's as if you're trying to leap out of the water before the boat has capsized. When I see that they don't understand, I don't spare the mouth work. That's a, <laughs> that's a literal translation if I ever heard one. But try once more to create trailing vines for them. Trailing vines, um, I've understood it to mean something else, but here, the footnote says, trailing, vi trailing vines are verbal pointers or any modes of teaching 
which the teacher lets out for the student to get hold of. I say, this one who fears falling into emptiness, has he been emptied or not? If your eyes aren't empty, how can you see forms? If your ears aren't empty, how can you hear sounds? If your nose isn't empty, how can you smell scents? If your tongue isn't empty, how can you taste flavors? If your body isn't empty, how can you feel contact? If your intellect isn't empty, how can you distinguish the myriad phenomena, uh, discriminate among phenomena? So in his questioning, his, his, in the form of his questions, he's saying it's because uh, the mind, it's be- because these different sense faculties are empty that we perceive them, we perceive through them. Someone, uh, I wish it had been I, uh, but uh, someone else, probably a, a teacher, maybe a, I heard it attributed to Pema Chodron, but I don't know, who said uh, the bad news about meditation is it's like leaping out of a plane with no parachute. The good news is There's no ground. One has to discover for oneself that there's nothing to fear by letting go completely. Letting go, of course, means reaching complete fusion, merging with the practice you're working on. You don't have to worry about letting go. The letting go happens through this merging with the practice. One doesn't have to do it oneself. I suppose it's like... um, yeah, in dangerous situations, uh, if you become concentrated enough on the nuts and bolts of it, uh, this is a way of transcending the fear. It's like this uh, amazing movie uh, about the guy scaling rocks. Uh, what's it called? Anyone want to help me here? He, he free, free solo, free solo, <laughs> free solo. He climbed, uh, first person to climb El Capitan without any kind of uh, support, just straight up. 
uh, it's absolutely harrowing uh, documentary. You know that what what uh, the way they overcome fear to to a large extent is just having to put all their focus in that next step, that little tiny chink in the rock where they have to get their hand in there. In terms of practice, that's just, just get in there and concentrate on the practice. If you do it fully enough, deeply enough, then you can find your way through the fear, if, if it should arise. And that doesn't have to happen to everyone. I did it with me. I only remember one time where I experienced uh, great fear at least that I knew of. I wasn't very much in touch with my feelings then, but uh, it was it was uh, terror. It was just, I probably, three or four or five seconds, it was a macchio of a, a demon with glittering eyes. I still feel the chills in my back, uh, just to describe it, remembering the image. This is where experience in Zazen is so important to have had the experience of going through this state of mind, that state of mind, this makyo, that makyo, and discovering that you always, it always passes. You always find your way through it. Not just that, but also a, a, uh, a, a, a detachment. Meta-awareness, I think is the word I used earlier, the session, where you have the presence of mind, you have the awareness, the detachment to see it as just a thing. It comes and goes. So you're not completely um, drowning in it. And this, uh, incidentally, is what they say is so vital uh, when we're going through the bardo after death and we're confronted with God only knows what kinds of images and memories. Uh, if we can have that kind of detachment to see it, see those things for what they are, just phenomena that have no, no roots to them, then that's what gives us the strength of mind uh, to move through them. The next paragraph, when people of power want to investigate this one great affair to the end, they they all break down their facades and with bold spirit draw their spines up straight. 
Do not go along with the feelings of others. Take your own constant point of doubt and stick it on your forehead. Always be as if you owed someone millions with nothing to repay with when pressed for payment, fearful of humiliation by others. Only thus will you have some direction in the task of finding urgency where there is no urgency, getting busy where there is no pressure, and finding importance where there is no importance. I'm just going to rewind here because uh, there's some great points here. They all break down their facades. It is cast aside self-consciousness. Uh, draw their spines up straight. That's why we sit in these postures. It gives us a little edge. Not a lot, but it gives us some advantage in our concentration to keep us straight back. The shoulders relaxed, the head drawn back, so the head rests on the trunk, the limbs gathered together, the legs pulled up somewhat toward the center of the body. This helps a little. It's not essential, but every little thing helps a little. Take your doubt. Stick it on your forehead. I would not give that advice. It's what's what we always say is to find this doubt, this questioning, uh, in the center to center it. Find it in our in our being. If we if we make the doubt sensation into something we're trying to figure out. Uh, with our cerebral mind, it's, this is hopeless. This won't help at all. I know he's not saying that, but it can too easily be understood that way. And then this image is, uh, you could say this is expedient means, where he's drawing from something that he would have known was salient, but very important to people of his time, this idea of being pressed for payment when you don't have any money and the fear of humiliation. Well, we can imagine that very well also, but somehow I have the impression that in in uh, China of the 12th century or the 8th century, this was a, an even bigger fear of not being able to pay pay one's creditors. And then this... Uh, this sentence, this, we, only this way will you find, have some direction in the task of finding urgency where there is no urgency. Well, it's true. We don't sense urgency. You know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna die next week, are we? Of course not. We're gonna live to age 90 or 100. What could go wrong? Uh, <laughs> Uh, finding urgency where there is no urgency, getting busy where there is no pressure. Yeah, this is no, it's from oneself. It has to come from inside. Getting uh, and finding importance where there is no importance. It's an interesting. He uses urgency and importance. I think of that saying, uh, work, uh, work that is important but not urgent and work that is urgent but not important. 
Well, this work that we all came here for this week is certainly important, and who knows how urgent it might turn out to be. He continues, work diligently day and night while eating and drinking when joyful or angry in clean places or unclean places. Uh, probably unclean places, probably he means uh, bathrooms or the latrines, in family gatherings, when entertaining guests, when dealing with official business in your post, when concluding a betrothal. All of these are first-rate times to make efforts to arouse and alert yourself and awaken And then he brings, brings out examples of extraordinarily busy people with great responsibility uh, who found their way. He says, in the old days, the military governor, Li Wen-ho, was able to practice Chan and attain great penetration and great enlightenment while in the thick of wealth and rank. When Yang Wen-kung successfully practiced Chan, he was dwelling in the Imperial Han Lin Academy. When Chang Wu Chin studied Chan, he was the Minister for Transport in Qiangxi. These three elders are examples of this, quote, not destroying the worldly aspect while speaking of the real aspect. End of quote. And then Dawei poses the question, when has it ever been necessary to leave wife and children, quit one's job, chew on vegetable roots, and cause pain to the body? That would be a reference to asceticism, what the Buddha tried unsuccessfully for six years, and cause pain to the body. Those of inferior aspiration shun, clamor, and seek quietude. Thence, they enter the ghost cave of dead tree Chan, entertaining false ideas that only thus can they awaken to the path. This uh, this could be Hakuan. So similar are they are their teachings. Maybe Hakuan was uh, Da Wei reborn. He continues, if you can manage not to forget the matter of birth and death while in the midst of the passions of the world, then even though you do not immediately smash the lacquer bucket of ignorance, nevertheless you will have planted deep the seed wisdom of transcendental knowledge, prajna. In another lifetime you will appear and save your mental power. You won't fall into evil dispositions. You'll overcome that sinking down into the defilement of passion. This is a, this is an angle that um, I've you see in in Chinese texts, but I don't remember ever seeing it in the 
Japanese texts I've read or read from in Teisho is the acknowledgement uh, that even if we don't come to awakening in this lifetime, well, we can pick up in the next one. And uh, in, in the next one, if we practice diligently this this lifetime, then we will be that be able to hit the ground running in the next lifetime. As a gentleman of affairs, your study of the path differs greatly from mine as a home leaver. Home leaver, of course, is a monk, celibate monk. Leavers of home do not serve their parents and abandon all their relatives for good. With one jug and one bowl, in daily activities according to circumstances, there are not so many enemies to obstruct the path. With one mind and one intent, monks just investigate this affair thoroughly. But when a worldly person opens his eyes, let's say, say a lay person, and is mindful of what he sees, there is nothing that is not an enemy spirit blocking the path. Obstruction. If he has wisdom, he makes his meditational effort right there. As Vimalakirti said, the companions of passion are the progenitors of the Tathagatas. I fear that people will destroy the worldly aspect to seek the real aspect. And then again, uh, he refers to Vimalakirti, making a comparison. It's like the high plateau not producing lotus flowers. It is the mud of the low-lying marshlands that produces these flowers. It's great, great uh, vote of confidence in what is possible uh, for those of us who are lay people. Uh, we don't have to just as this, this this widespread notion had it in in. Uh, China of Dawei's time. We don't have to just settle for, uh, well, in those days it would have been uh, supporting monks uh, and monasteries in order, to, in hopes of getting a good rebirth as a monk in the next lifetime. It seems that uh, for serious practitioners uh, in this country, Maybe you could say in Western countries today, uh, among those who are able to get to Sashin, that's that's uh, the next best thing to being in a in a samadhi throughout one's busy days is is doing one's best in one's job and at home and the family, and then getting to see Sashin when one can, where there is this extraordinary opportunity to break through, to break through. One more paragraph. If you can penetrate through right here, your power will 
surpass that of us leavers of home by twentyfold. How so? We monks are on the outside breaking in. Lay people are on the inside breaking out. The power of one on the outside breaking in is weak. The power of one on the inside breaking out is strong. Strong, meaning that what is opposed is heavy, so in overturning it, there is power. Weak, that's the path of monks, means what is opposed is light, so over in overturning it, there is little power. And then he levels the, the playing field by saying, though there is strong and weak in terms of power, what is opposed is the same. Time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. Thank you.